right, well, thank you very much. It's great to be here again. And I'm ready for lecture three, a comparative and constructive confession of union with Christ. I don't know if I mentioned that I'm doing the alliteration to try to make this Baptist relevant, but that's, that's what's going on here. This is, um, as I was working with the material, it kind of flipped, and it's mostly going to be constructive here. Um, though there's a little bit of shout out to doing some comparative work uh, towards the end, so just a heads up there. All right, yesterday we explored the biblical genres in which the doctrine of union with Christ is conveyed to us. First of all, the Gospels, as a life of Christ narrated as an inside story written by those who are joined to Christ, intended to be read and reread by those who are joined to Christ. Secondly, and supportingly, the epistles, which rest on Jesus' life for us as they explain how our lives are saved in him. And before that, we looked at how the creeds enshrine the doctrine of union with Christ, and how expositors like John Calvin draw out by commentary that creedal narrative genre of union with Christ. In the second lecture, we surveyed some classic creative instances of writing out the truth of union with Christ in a way that directs our focus, first of all, to Jesus Christ himself, and then annexes our salvation to him. Thomas's version of the tradition called Mysteries of the Life of Jesus, and then Isaac Ambrose's devotional volume, Looking Unto Jesus, along with some uh, other briefer comments. Having noted the theological resonance and richness of these genres, we concluded by asking the question, is the ordo salutis, that is an order of salvation, and I'll keep using the Latin term just because order of salvation often like, makes too much sense when you hear it and you don't register it as a technical term, so I'll just go ahead and say ordo salutis. Not to sound fancy, but to make sure it registers as a technical term. The question is, is the ordo salutis also an appropriate genre for writing the doctrine of union with Christ? An ordo, after all, is a list rather than a narrative, and it moves in a different conceptual idiom than the other genres we explored. The question about its appropriateness is also a pointed question, because there have been thinkers who have answered this question in the negative, denying that an ordo salutis can contain the doctrine of union with Christ. That contrast has been made in precisely this form. Supposedly, you can either teach about union with Christ, or you can teach about salvation according to an ordo salutis. But the two worlds can never meet according to this rejection, with which I disagree. Fully acknowledging the genre difference, I want to argue that the doctrine of union with Christ can in fact be taught using the Ordo Salutis tradition, and that they complement each other quite well. Union with Christ is bigger, better, more organic, more primal, and more inclined to rivet our attention on Jesus Christ himself. But a well-explained order of salvation, even presented in chart format, which is about as non-narrative as you can get, I speak as a kind of dispensationalist, can certainly play a valuable supporting role. There is no need to choose one over the other when we can have both. So let's begin by admitting the grain of truth in the criticism. Union with Christ has never fit very snugly into the Ordo Salutis. We call as our chief witness John Murray, whose book Redemption Accomplished and Applied, Erdman's 1955, is probably the most influential, popular-level presentation of the Ordo Salutis. Murray's book has 15 chapters, five on atonement, that is, redemption accomplished, and 10 on the Ordo Salutis, that is, redemption applied. Murray's survey explanation of the Ordo begins with effectual calling and ends with glorification. 
And in between effectual calling and glorification, he teaches about the other points of the Ordo Salutis, regeneration, faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance. Throughout, he makes a number of structural or systemic observations about why these elements should be ordered in this way. Murray's reformed commitments show up at several points, not least his arguments for why regeneration, according to him, must precede faith. And that's the, the place of the classic uh, argument about salvation between the Calvinist and non-Calvinist. Regeneration must precede faith for the reformed argument. Uh, Murray devotes a chapter to our subject, Union with Christ. So the doctrine of union with Christ does fit within his Ordo Salutis book. But it's an unusual chapter within the structure of the book. For one thing, Murray puts off his treatment of union with Christ as long as possible, delaying it all the way to the penultimate position, chapter 9 of the 10 chapters in the Redemption Applied section of the book. The only thing that Murray treats later than union with Christ is the doctrine of glorification, which obviously has to come last because of its consummating character as a final thing. So with that final spot reserved in advance for glorification, Murray treats union with Christ as close to the end as possible. And on page 161 out of 181, he gives solid reasons for saving it for next to last. Murray says, intelligent readers may have wondered why there has not been up to this point some treatment of union with Christ. Obviously, it is an important aspect of the application of redemption. And if we did not take account of it, not only would our presentation of the application of redemption be defective, but our view of the Christian life would be gravely distorted. Nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. Now, notice already the high estimation Murray has of the doctrine of union. Nothing is more central or basic. So while it fits in the book, indeed, while it must fit in the book for the book to avoid being gravely distorted in its views, it does not exactly fit in the ordo itself. It is not coordinated with the ordo. Get it? Murray explains, there is, however, a good reason why the subject of union with Christ should not be coordinated with the other phases of the application of redemption uh, with which we have dealt. That reason is that the union with Christ in itself is a very broad and embraceive subject. Broad and embraceive. That's a, in short words, that would be big hug, right? Broad and embraceive. It is not simply a step in the application of redemption. When viewed according to the teaching of Scripture, in its broader aspects, union with Christ underlies every step of the application of redemption. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. Indeed, the whole process of salvation has its origin in one phase of union with Christ, and salvation has in view the realization of other phases of union with Christ. This can readily be seen if we remember that brief expression, which is so common in the New Testament, namely, in Christ. It is that which is meant by in Christ that we have in mind when we speak of union with Christ. It is quite apparent that the scripture applies the expression in Christ to much more than the application of redemption. A certain aspect of union with Christ, it is true, belongs strictly to the application of redemption. With that, we shall deal later. But we should not deal properly with the subject of union with Christ unless we set forth, first of all, its broader meaning. We would not be able to appreciate that which falls within the application of redemption if we did not relate it to that which is broader. So this is, I take John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, to be like the gold standard for normal teaching on this. It's been incredibly influential. 
Um, I was discussing Union with Christ uh, this month with Kevin Van Hooser, and he said, yep, it's a textbook they gave me uh, when I was studying this stuff. So, This is crucial to note. Not only does Union with Christ outflank and overwhelm the entire sequence of redemption's application, it even oversteps the boundary that distinguishes redemption accomplished from redemption applied. I mean, think of the book's famous title, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, and yet one subject treated under the heading of redemption, applied, turns out to overarch the entire text. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, Murray says, not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. That is, even Christ's own accomplishment of his finished work, that is, atonement proper, is itself already an expression of the central truth, which is union with Christ. Now, this admission in chapter 14 really does threaten to challenge the entire paradigm of the book, all the way down to its title. Murray obviously believes that the two belong together in one exposition, but it's easy to see why critics would have mounted a more radical critique. Union with Christ is so large that it overwhelms the Ordo presentation, but it doesn't destroy the Ordo presentation. Murray calls the doctrine large and embracive, not large and explosive. We just need to bear constantly in mind as we work with the Ordo Salutis that all of it happens inside of union with Christ or even happens in Christ. Murray goes on. Union with Christ is a very inclusive subject. It embraces the wide span of salvation from its ultimate source in the eternal election of God to its final fruition in the glorification of the elect. So it would be in bad taste to call it the Alpha and the Omega because we know who that is, but it really is that large. And he repeats himself. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption, both in its accomplishment and its application. Union with Christ binds all together and ensures that to all for whom Christ has purchased redemption, he effectively applies and communicates the same. But union with Christ is an important part of the application of redemption as well. We do not become actual partakers of Christ until redemption is effectively applied. Now, Murray doesn't give much space here to explaining the two different ways he's using the category of union with Christ, but it's clear that he considers it in two ways, both as a reality larger than the entire Ordo Salutis, indeed larger than the accomplished applied schema itself, and also as an entry point into the application of redemption. So it's both a field-encompassing field and a point of entry. Like John Murray, in one sense I'm perfectly satisfied with using the Ordo Salutis as a teaching tool, as a genre that helps support teaching union with Christ. It's biblical, it can function well as an outline of the many facets of salvation. It's especially helpful for clarifying the relations among those parts, because you do need to distinguish things clearly before you can relate them intimately. If you don't start by distinguishing them, you're just talking about one thing and you can't talk about how closely they are related. But along with John Murray, I also recognize that in some ways the Ordo needs to be turned inside out somehow if it's going to be a house for union with Christ. It needs some new pictures on the wall at least, or possibly a lot of mirrors inside to make sure that the vital truths are reflected everywhere and distributed throughout the system. Or possibly it needs a massive skylight down through which the transcendent truth of salvation can shine in its undivided light to fall on each particular. Now, Murray's invitation to consider union with Christ as embracing the accomplishment side of salvation 
which I take to be the largest claim here, right? That it would take over the whole ordo makes sense to me, but the fact that it would also reach across into uh, redemption um, accomplished is, I think, a larger claim. Uh, and, and needs to be handled right, because you could, you could make some mistakes there if you take that the wrong way. But his invitation to consider it as also embracing the accomplishment side raises a couple of questions which we've been putting off for some time in these lectures and which we need to address now before talking about the actual nature of our union with Christ. Modern discussions of the atonement, we're moving into that accomplished side of things, modern discussions of the atonement have been in notable disarray. And it's a kind of disarray that is antithetical to the unified treatment of union with Christ that we're pursuing. There is fragmentation in modern atonement theology that needs to be repaired before we can begin to understand union with Christ as embracively including both the accomplishment and the application of redemption. You may recall that we began the lecture by insisting that there's such a thing, we began the first lecture, uh, by insisting that there's such a thing as one common Christian doctrine of salvation. Now, the denial of that unity in soteriology has taken on one particular form in the modern period to which we need to pay close attention. Recall that J.N.D. Kelly contrasted patristic clarity on Trinity and Christology with the lack of focus on soteriology among the fathers. In his words, this is the Kelly quote again, redemption did not become a battleground for rival schools until the 12th century when Anselm's Curdeus Homo focused attention on it. Now, Kelly said that the student of soteriology, quote, must be prepared to pick his way through a variety of theories to all appearance unrelated and even mutually incompatible, existing side by side and sometimes sponsored by the same theologian. Now we've acknowledged the element of truth uh, in this observation, but Kelly's language is telling. It gives away too much, and in fact, it gives away Kelly's own location in the intellectual currents of the mid 20th century. Um, I'm pretty sure that early Christian doctrines, where I'm quoting this from, came out in 1958, so that's roughly when J.N.D. Kelly's working. He lived from 1909 to 1997. Uh, but this language kind of tells you where he's from and when he's writing. Kelly did excellent work in historical theology, and his two best books, Early Christian Creeds and Early Christian Doctrines, remain in print and can be used with great profit. But the idea that soteriology comes to us in the form of, quote, a variety of theories to all appearances unrelated and even mutually incompatible is itself an idea with a late modern pedigree. Viewing the history of soteriology as something that doesn't start until Anselm establishes the possibility of rival schools by setting forth a systematic theory is a mistaken reading of that history based on a kind of category error. The fundamental error comes in conceiving of atonement theology as divided up into numerous theories. In a recent article in the International Journal of Systematic Theology, Adam Johnson has traced the genealogy of this way of thinking. I try never to use the term game changer when I'm reviewing recent work, but the game is changed by this article. So anyway, you can use that. Um, Adam Johnson has traced the genealogy of this theory's way of thinking. Uh, the genealogy more or less starts with the work of F.C. Bauer on the history of dogma. Bauer, B-A-U-R, approached the history of doctrine as a sequence of competing systems that vied with each other for supremacy, developing across time in a dynamic process of growth through conflict. It's a kind of Hegelian historicist, thesis, antithesis, synthesis sort of approach to early Christian history. A very systematic in that sense, right? Like locked in um, theories. 
Um, his reasons were idealist and broadly Hegelian, but his influence was great, even for people who didn't buy into his total worldview. They picked up his terminology, and it has become standard in a lot of seminary teaching. From about 1870 on, the novel category of theories of the atonement, which nobody talked about before and everybody talks about after Bauer, took hold. Almost everyone began um, working with the historical material through, as Adam Johnson says, the rubric of discrete competing theories of the atonement, a vision which deeply shaped the work of proponents and opponents alike and gave rise to a range of categories and nomenclatures which shape discussion to this day. Johnson traces the history well, and there are some killer footnotes throughout if you want to read back into the 19th century history of dogma school. Um, but anybody who's read an introductory text on atonement has almost certainly taken in the influence and can recite some version of the typology of atonement theories, ransom, satisfaction, penal substitution, Christus Victor, and so on. Uh, when I was taking classes on this, uh, not only were there typologies, there were so many typologies of atonement theories out there that the the book that was assigned in one class was a typology of typologies, explaining how these were divided up by different thinkers, so really going to the next level with it. Um, in recent decades, there's been a growing consensus that a large number of flowers bloom in the Garden of Atonement, and the best we can do is pick a bouquet that makes the best of each variety of theory. Now, I don't want to deny the usefulness of this approach. And if we get into a flower fight over which bouquets work out best, I will definitely take sides and argue that some bouquets are better than others. If we had more time for more topics, I would definitely want to mount an argument for the importance of vicarious punishment's important role within the total doctrine of atonement. And I might even try to wax eloquent on the blood of Christ as the red rose without which no bouquet is beautiful or appropriate in this field. But I won't. <laughs> Mainly in company with Adam Johnson, I just want to object to the whole project of gathering uh, bouquets, or as the 19th century would call them, nosegays. This is a word we don't use anymore, but um, when you get lots of flowers from all over the place to make a nice smell and make your nose happy, that's a nosegay. Um, so it's a, I don't know, it's a bonus word for you. Um, <laughs> notice that formally speaking, the project, so formally speaking, the project puts the contemporary theologian far too much in charge of deciding what goes in, what stays out, and how it's arranged. Um, part of the attractiveness uh, that I think has drawn people to this bouquet or nosegay kind of approach to um, atonement work is if you really hate penal substitution, you can just leave that one on the shelf and leave it out of your bouquet, right? And then if that makes you mad, you can get nothing but penal substitution and like say, look, it's, it's a bouquet of nothing but roses. So, so that some of those fights can kind of take, turn, take, um, uh, take place on that ground. Um, now, flower arrangement is a real art. And this modern method of composing atonement teaching puts the theologian very much in the position of making all the difference in how well things come out. That's too much power for a theologian. Something has gone wrong, even if it comes out all right in your particular bouquet. Let me say this carefully. Formally speaking, this theological method emphasizes the individual choice and selection, which is, you know, hieresis, the root word of heresy. Formally speaking, there's something akin to heresy in the very method of selection and arrangement commended by modern approaches to atonement, even if the results come out orthodox. So I said that carefully. So you know, when you go out here and say I called people heretics, like put the context in. That, this is why the hunt for a unified theory of atonement is so important in modern theology, and book after book proposes that they've got the unified theory of atonement. But notice the key word there, theory. 
it can't be theory in the same sense as atonement theories, as Adam Johnson has narrated, because those have to be systematically self-contained, um, uh, mutually exclusive, totalizing accounts of how atonement works. If it's just another one of the flowers, if it's just a theory, then it's another one of the flowers. Maybe especially big one. I don't, I'm not going to, a big sunflower or something. I know. Johnson quotes an early objector to this theories of atonement mode of working. So in the 19th century, right when this was first beginning to be used, and some people were saying, wait, why are we talking like that? This is going to change how we talk about everything in atonement. Um, this is an author named Oxenham that Johnson quotes. Um, an early objector to this theories of atonement mode of working pointed out that Bauer and company had, quote, a passion for systematizing which sometimes leads them to exclusive or disproportionate value to one side of a writer's view, to the exclusion or neglect of others, and has an essentially negative cast, preternaturally alive to the slightest indications of inconsistency, while unable to recognize the plainest evidences of unity. Okay, there's a lot there, but what you see is the kind of formation of a theological mind that notices difference and takes that to be the only thing we're talking about. Um, brief digression here. Um, Setting things up with theories of atonement and then trying to read anything from historical theology is really baffling because you learn these supposedly self-contained theories of the atonement and you say, and they say, well, Anselm's going to do the satisfaction theory. And then you read Anselm and it's got almost everything going on in it, right? Or you read like, oh, Luther championed Christus Victor and that's a retrieval of this classic view. And then you read Athanasius and it's got Christus Victor and you read Calvin and he's doing everything at once, right? And some people have, uh, well, anyway, I could say more, but it's, it's one of these theories which has an initial plausibility. It works well if you've only got like two lectures to cover all of atonement, and if no one's ever gonna read primary text, right? Because <laughs> as soon as you crack open primary text, this account works for almost nothing, yeah? And it was kind of perfected by Gustav Allain to make Luther the absolute winner of the atonement fight. Um, but you have to like distort the entire history of theology, including Luther, to make it work out that way. The way forward from this, as Adam Johnson recommends, is not theories, but theoria, the Greek word for contemplation. John Webster warned that a good deal of modern theological culture has been reluctant to consider contemplation, theoria, a proper end of theological intelligence. Johnson's extended paraphrase of that observation is, a good deal of modern theology has been reluctant to contemplate those treatises which would guide it into a fuller and more comprehensive understanding of the death and resurrection of Jesus, resting content with one-dimensional, reductionist, and therefore easily contrasted accounts of those works. The goal is not one of Wissenschaft, but Theoria, first of God and then of theological texts. So Wissenschaft to get you in the mindset of that modern Berlin model university knowledge production system of organized, systematized knowledge, as opposed to Theoria, which he uh, uses in Greek to tap into this Greek patristic mode of contemplation of God. Um, and just to pick up what Webster said, the idea that if I'm doing theology and you ask me why and I say to contemplate God, that sounds very unacademic, right? It might sound like noble in some way or admirable or spiritual, but no one's going to say, yes, what an academic thing to say, contemplating God. So that's why it kind of doesn't count. It's not that it's wrong. It's like it doesn't even count as theological knowledge under some academic regimes. 
And then that, that goes hand in hand with the problem that working in the mode of commentary on classical texts also doesn't seem very academic because you're not making a unique contribution to the body of knowledge being pushed forward by the university project. And so this kind of overlaps. You're not reading the historical theology in order to comment on it and draw out its insights. Therefore, you're not, um, uh, therefore you're, you're merely contemplating or you're just comparing um, uh, theories to each other. Okay. Um, in other words, theoria, contemplation of God, particularly through God's saving work in Jesus Christ, is the governing paradigm for the pre-modern theological task and should be our goal in the theology of the atonement, especially when we recognize atonement theology as an aspect of the embraceive doctrine of union with Christ. Now, before we leave Johnson's reorientation of atonement theology, I want to provide the four warnings that he gives for the dangers of using this theories of atonement schema. Um, so four dangers of, of pursuing this theories of atonement schema. Number one, anachronism. To speak of Calvin's or Irenaeus's theory of the work of Christ is to employ a category they themselves did not ever use and wouldn't, and therefore to run the risk of interpreting their thought in ways obviously alien to their own intention. If you could travel back in time and ask Calvin, what's your theory of atonement? He would say in French, what? Yeah. Number two, distortion. It presupposes, uh, this, this mode, uh, this schema, presupposes philosophical, epistemological, or other commitments which distort the thought of those we seek to interpret. In particular, Adam says, theory language emerges from a context saturated with idealist philosophical presuppositions. It's an exotic lens to use on pre-modern theology, and it distorts it. Third danger, uncritical adoption of distinctions and categories of others in summarizing the history of the doctrine of the atonement arise from this. Great teachers may be able to make it their own, um, but mostly we get parroted summaries of, th of three, four, five, or six main theories rehashed from Alain or F.C. Bauer. So there is, there is really solid teaching going on out there under this regime, um, but it's, it's sort of uh, just by the bravura performance of a great teacher saying, hey, everybody, write down these models of the atonement, and then really making it work to actually kind of engage the subject. Um, I, I think it's time to move on be, beyond the very approach. Fourth uh, area, overemphasis on conflict and difference. Theory language is specifically designed for art artificially parsing the history of the doctrine into different historically conditioned and mutually exclusive camps. That's what it's for. So only use it if you're wanting to do that with the history of theology. Gone are the lines of continuity and the vast common reservoirs of Bible reading and contemplation that are actually populating most of pre-modern theology. So, to return from this necessary digression on atonement doctrine and redirect our attention from that back to the overall place of union with Christ in Christian theology, the point is to use union embracively, or as Kevin Van Hooser says, to use the doctrine of union with Christ in its simplicity. Here's Van Hooser um, after reporting on a bunch of reformed discussion of union with Christ. He says, what I want to take from this conversation in reformed soteriology is what I shall call the simplicity of union. In brief, union is to soteriology what the doctrine of divine simplicity is to theology proper. The doctrine of divine simplicity states that God is not a composite of his parts. Rather, his being is coextensive with his attributes. For example, God does not have love. God is love. And now the analogy. Just as God is one, so salvation is simple. In the words of Richard Gaffin, there is but one union with distinguishable but inseparable coexisting legal and renovative aspects. Just as each divine, that's the end of that quote, just as each divine attribute gives us a perspective on God's being, 
so each element in the order of salvation, not just justification and sanctification, which give us two angles on it, but election and glorification as well, shines a light on another aspect of our union with Christ. Uh, and then Richard Gaffin says, every element in the classical ordo salutis is thus a further perspective on the one reality of the believer's union with Christ. Now, John Calvin wrote, as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Institutes 3.1, the beginning of book three. This classic pedagogical move of positing a conceptual interval between salvation accomplished and applied draws our attention to the decisive issue of how that gap is filled. Here's a little more context from Calvin. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. Now, this is a classic statement, and this is kind of the, the fountainhead or the beginning point for um, solid teaching on union with Christ. This is a diagram I draw all the time in like every class where this comes up. Um, for several reasons. First of all, there's the Trinitarian element of it in this uh, part of Calvin's Institutes. Um, broadly, he has God the Father accomplishing our salvation in Christ, the Father putting redemption in the Son, and then raising the question, but if that happens outside of you, it's no good to you. So what do you do about the Father putting all our salvation in the Son? Well, you'll recognize this is the classic move of union with Christ that I've been commending. You start with Jesus, and then the question is, how does that get applied to me? His first answer, actually, as you move into that section, uh, book three of the Institutes, on the basis of all he's done with Christology um, and atonement, his first answer is, that gets applied to me by faith. But then he says, well, but faith, that's a, that could mean a lot of different things. And you could mean it almost as a work that you do that somehow unites you to the work of salvation and puts too much on your active reception of it. So he says, we have to climb higher and inquire into the mystery of the spirit. And this is where the Trinitarian, uh, I was going to say the Trinitarian circle is closed. This is where the triangle is complete on the diagram, right? The Father puts salvation in the Son. How do you get into that? The answer is the Spirit. But it's a nice discussion, right? The answer is faith. Well, faith in the sense of the work of God in the one who receives salvation. And so um, there you get that whole thing. Um, it matters a great deal for Calvin how you fill that gap. And that gap is more than just pedagogical. It's not just that I'm describing to you how to bring the ideas into your mind. Think first of the Father working salvation, then of him placing it in the Son, then of the Spirit uniting you to it. So there's that. But there's a lot more going on in this um, instructional gap that, that Calvin puts in place. Lives are ruined um, when people desperately try to fill that gap with anything but the Spirit and faith. All kinds of things you could throw in there. Works, worthiness passionate personal experience where you deeply feel it in your heart, theological education where you finally understand what's going on, etc. Uh, none of these work to fill that gap to get you into Christ. A huge part of Christian ministry, theological and pastoral, is helping people learn and relearn to give up on those other plans and confess that it's God who does it. 1 Corinthians 1.30, by God's doing, you are in Christ, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. 
Um, the King James version of that, 1 Corinthians 1.30, is, of him are ye in Christ. Which I, it's so blunt, it's almost not English, like, of him are ye in Christ. Reasonable modern translations will go with, it is by God's doing that you are in Christ, which you've got to provide a noun there, doing. Um, of him are ye in Christ. Notice how much is in Christ there in 1 Corinthians 1.30, wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification. With more time, we can engage this uh, wonderful conversation there's been, especially in Reformed theology, digging into each of those, wisdom, righteousness, um, uh, sanctification, and notice the importance of finding it all in Christ. Everything is there in Christ. Um, as Calvin would say, and as we talked about yesterday from Institute's book too, our whole salvation and all its parts. The fact that 1 Corinthians uh, 1.30 uses both the word righteousness, which functions so well in a forensic justification context, and the word sanctification, which can function so well um, in a holiness context, especially the transformation of the self into uh, being sanctified, set apart for God. That means that this being in Christ by God's work includes within it these two elements, which sometimes can get you confused about how to make them both part of a statement of soteriology. Um, a few chapters later in Institutes 3, in chapter 11, Calvin says, the whole thing may be summed up thus. Christ, given to us by the kindness of God, is apprehended and possessed by faith, by means of which we obtain in particular a twofold benefit. First, being reconciled by the righteousness of Christ, God becomes, instead of a judge, an indulgent father. And second, being sanctified by his spirit, we aspire to integrity and purity of life. That's Institutes 3.11. There's a great discussion in Calvin's studies of how union with Christ is the overarching reality that brings about the twofold grace, the duplex gratia, of justification and sanctification, um, reconciled as they must be in Christ. Some of the big fights occur particularly here, um, not just fights over the very difficult, vexed issue of how to combine both justification and sanctification um, as a twofold grace that comes to us in union with Christ, uh, but also some major confessional disputes that have really um, uh, uh, given form to Christian history of conflict. So here's some of the comparative side, but it's, it's abbreviated. Um, E.A. Lytton, an Anglican theologian whose theological career was devoted to systematically opposing Anglo-Catholicism. So we're dealing with a Church of England teacher here who wants to interpret Anglicanism as very much Protestant. But he's in the 19th century when he's opposing people like Newman who want to interpret Anglicanism for a while um, as very much uh, Roman Catholic. Lytton is systematically opposing that kind of Oxford movement Anglo-Catholicism. Um, and when I say systematically, I mean he wrote a book called Introduction to Dogmatic Theology, which is like a systematized uh, interpretation of Anglican as not Anglo-Catholic. Yeah. So here's what Lytton says. I, I set that up because his language is a little, um, little spicy. Uh, Lytton says, Romanism, including its mutilated counterpart, Anglo-Catholicism, is a religion of the incarnation, the virtue of which is communicated by sacraments. Let me do that again. Roman Catholicism is a religion of the incarnation, the virtue of which is communicated by sacraments. Protestantism is a religion of the atonement, the virtue of which is appropriated by direct faith in Christ, his word and his works. Now, on neither side are these cordial facts of religion or their connection denied. That is to say, 
Team Incarnation isn't denying the atonement, nor is Team Atonement denying the incarnation, but as systems compared to each other, these are two distinct systems. On neither side of these denied, there could have been no atonement if there had been no incarnation, but the stress laid on the one or the other may affect one's whole conception of Christianity and lead to widely divergent theological systems, as indeed it has. Um, now, in this polemical way of putting things, we notice that being wrong about what fills the gap, God the Father has put salvation in the Son, how do we get it by the Spirit? Um, if you put the wrong thing in that gap, it's actually being wrong about the entire nature of that gap, right? It's not just giving the wrong answer to how to fill it, but it's actually saying the problem, the distance between me and Christ is actually one uh, that must be sacramentally mediated so that I can get into the incarnation. But Lytton would point out, no, everyone's by default in the incarnation because Christ became fully human. The Christian religion is about another thing. So is our problem something solved by incarnation itself or by our problem of sin, which is to say it's answered by uh, the atonement appropriated by faith worked by the Holy Spirit? Oh, here's the section I had to skip. Okay. As we round the last corner here, I want to return to John Murray's treatment of union, which at the end of his chapter, he expands in a couple of important ways. First of all, Murray expands his notion of union with Christ with reference to mystic union, that is, secret union, uh, not directly observable union. Murray says, believers are called into the fellowship of Christ, and fellowship means communion. The life of faith is one of living union and communion with the exalted and ever-present Redeemer. Faith is directed not only to a Redeemer who has come and completed once for all a work of redemption, it is directed to him not merely as the one who died, but as the one who rose again and who ever lives as our great high priest and advocate. So there's this emphasis on the current experience of salvation as uh, a life of communion with a, a present Christ. It's that note of the present Christ that we've been sounding. It's, it's also in Murray. The second way that Murray expands his notion of union with Christ is to include an explicit reference to the Trinity. Murray says, there is another phase of the subject of union with Christ which must not be omitted. If it were overlooked, there would be a serious defect in our understanding and appreciation of the implications of the union. These are the implications which arise from the relations of Christ to the other persons of the Trinity, and from our relations to the other persons of the Trinity by reason of our union with Christ. Union with the Father, as we uh, hear about in John 10.30, the Father abiding with us, John 14.23, and the Spirit being with us in Christ. Um, all of these are bundled in with union with Christ. Murray says, it is union, therefore, with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit that union with Christ draws along with it. So I like, I like that image of, of union with Christ drawing along with it, union with the Father and the Spirit. I think it's a um, it gets you everything, and it gets you everything in a, in a logical sequence or order that, that uh, is appropriate. Now, this um, skylight that I mentioned earlier in the architectural metaphor, this open ceiling that lets in the unified light of Trinitarian soteriology is really what we're after in teaching union with Christ. Um, here is a traditional way of talking about the whole field of theology. There are three great mysteries in Christian theology, the Trinity, the incarnation, and salvation. Now, some people will provide here the word atonement, and that gives you these three big words, not directly in the Bible, trinity, incarnation, and atonement. It's a great first step 
when someone's reading the Bible and has understood so much of the truth in it, and you want to give them some large organizing categories, that's actually what non-biblical words are, are often for, right? Like, I know what you're reading. Here's a word to name that thing to kind of draw it all together. So Trinity, Incarnation, and Atonement can be a great way to get there. These three mysteries are all mysteries of unity. The mystery of the Trinity is how the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are the one only God. The mystery of the Incarnation is how the divine nature is united to human nature in the person of our one Lord Jesus Christ. And the mystery of the Atonement is the mystery of how the holiness of God can be reconciled with the unholiness of sinners so that we can be brought home to God. And these three mysteries are all mega-doctrines, large clusters of theological truth that draw together data from all over the Bible. They are big. They're too big to be found completely in one place. So they're represented by words that aren't directly biblical. The Bible says the word became flesh, but the noun incarnation is a conceptual tool for gathering in that statement and combining it with all the other biblical testimony to who Jesus Christ is. The word trinity is likewise an extra biblical word for a biblical idea, an idea so expansive that you have to take a step back and see the Bible as a whole in order to take it all in. And atonement, though the word itself is biblical, most clearly from the Old Testament, has a special theological meaning when it is applied to the work of Christ on the cross as the center and focus of God's ways with fallen humanity. There's an interesting old tradition of grouping these three mysteries together, especially when teaching about salvation. I take it to be a wise and wonderful tradition. Before taking up the topic of salvation, this three mysteries approach reminds us that there's a larger horizon of Christian truth behind the experience of salvation. And the order is perfect. God the Trinity, Christ the Incarnate One, and then salvation. It leads the student's mind away from an overly narrow consideration of salvation and takes them on an itinerary into the depths of God. It can be a short trip, just a mere gesture at the infinite horizon, a suggestion that something is much, much greater is out there, communicating its own very determinate meaning and purposes to our salvation. But it reminds us all that salvation is not a topic that can just be picked up and handled on its own terms. The doctrine of salvation takes all its orders from prior considerations about who does the saving and what resources must be mobilized in order to provide for the gospel. So Trinity, Incarnation, and Atonement. But there's also a variation on this triad. Sometimes the three mysteries are announced as Trinity, Incarnation, and Union with Christ, which oddly is also not a biblical term, right? You're not going to find the, find the phrase Union with Christ um, sort of mobilized in, in that cluster. But you say, well, it's... It doesn't sound like a fancy word like Trinity or Incarnation, but it's interesting to flag it as the most biblical idea represented in a not directly biblical term. I mean, you could probably do an alternate translation of parts of Ephesians and get the phrase out of it, but it's not a standard translation. Um, the great Adolf Safir, who I mentioned yesterday, who lived from 1831 to 1891, um, talks about this. Safir says, let us ever with adoring hearts believe in the three unions which the church has confessed in all ages. First, we behold Jesus, God and man, two natures in one person, Lord of glory, God with us. Beholding Christ, we see the Father and receive the Spirit. Thus, we learn to adore, secondly, the eternal and essential union of Father, Son and Holy Ghost. The Savior reveals to us the eternal love of the Father. We know Christ as the word by whom all things were made, the only begotten, loved before the foundation of the world. Um, accepted in the beloved and seated with him in heavenly places, we adore the love of the Father who chose us in Christ and look forward to the glory which the heirs of God and the joint heirs of the Son shall possess. 
Um, as you can tell from the tone there, Safir um, warms to the subject and goes on uh, at, at great devotional length about how these three unions inform each other. Notice that Safir's approach is still a movement toward the doctrine of salvation. That is, whatever part of the doctrine of salvation a teacher draws attention to, um, if he does it using this three mysteries schema, it is recognizably following the same pedagogical strategy of putting salvation into its Trinitarian Christological context. Now, no wait, I think I need to skip this section too. Sorry about that. Yes, I will skip that. It's more Saphir. Basically, my advice is read a lot of Adolf Saphir. <laughs> S-A-P-H-I-R. Okay. Um, conclusion. I want to draw this together with some recommendations for how to teach union with Christ drawn from all three lectures. So I would say teach it in such a way that it rivets our attention on Jesus Christ himself. Tell his story with its meaning. J. Gresham Machen uh, defined the gospel as being a fact plus its meaning, and he illustrated that with um, Jesus died, that's a fact, for us, that's the meaning. It's impossible to make a theological claim without stating a fact of something that is true and then describing its meaning, and that's how the Bible moves in its claims. Um, something like that structure is going on when you teach union with Christ in such a way that you first uh, establish the story of Jesus Christ and then explain how we were joined to it. Teach it in the knowledge that the Christ who we are in is the Christ who is living and active, who in fact is the prophet of his own royal priesthood, who commandeers human teaching to be the means of his own teaching here and now, making disciples and joining them to himself. So this emphasis on Christ present as opposed to the constant temptation to treat Christ as an inert historical reality that we then do something now to sort of make living and active for us. Instead, to call to mind the union with Christ I am talking about, I am talking about in the very active, effective presence of the one I'm talking about, right? So it can make the, makes the doctrine feel haunted by the Holy Ghost in a good way, right? By the presence of Christ. Teach union with Christ, not explosively, but embracively. It does not shatter our soteriological categories, but takes them in and binds them all together. The ordo salutis, even in chart format, is an excellent way to anatomize salvation and explore the entire territory zone by zone. Often when you take a large subject and subdivide it into different areas, people with a romantic poetic sensibility might say, oh, you murder by dissecting. That's Wordsworth. Okay, so okay, Wordsworth, just, I'm not, I'm not dissecting, I'm anatomizing, right? No one is getting cut up here. I'm just describing the large thing bit by bit so we can focus on the individual elements of it. And that's what the Ordo Salutis excels at, if you want to like move around the whole territory. On the vexed question of where to put the doctrine of union with Christ when teaching through the Ordo Salutis, refuse to choose. Um, admit that it does not fit within the order of salvation and that there is no proper place where it will stay put. Instead, teach it everywhere, before, during, and after the entire redemption accomplished and applied schema. Call it out at first, call it back, teach it more. It really is that large and it has to be handled that way. There's the narrow sense in which, of course, you have to use the category of union with Christ to talk about our inclusion in Christ as the point at which all the blessings are applied to us. Also teach it there and make the distinction. Um, I could say more about that. There are, there are other parts of the Ordo Salutis uh, which you can really lean into to, to make that point about inclusion in Christ um, and, and really let the main weight of union with Christ be this large and embrace function that it has had classically.
Next, do not confine union with Christ to the redemption accomplished side of the house. God's intention to include us in the actual accomplishing of the finished work of Christ must also be taken into account. In particular, when teaching on the atonement, let union with Christ guide the way we think of atonement. Avoid whenever possible treating the atonement under the heading of theories, a bad habit of talking picked up from the 19th century liberal Protestant historians of dogma. Instead of theories, pursue theoria, a holistic contemplation of all the many ends accomplished by God through the one means of Christ's work. And then finally, teach union with Christ as one of the three great unities of Christian doctrine, Trinity, Incarnation, Union with Christ. Pursue this Trinitarian soteriology in a way that gives honor and glory to the Trinity and returns appropriate praise to that triune God for the fullness and the freeness of salvation. Thank you.